Application delivery has become more complex as software architectures have moved into the cloud. Data center infrastructure has turned into code to be manipulated, and software engineering teams are adjusting their strategies. HashiCorp is a company that builds open-source software for modern application development and deployment. Mitchell Hashimoto is the founder of HashiCorp, and he joins us to discuss a modern approach to application delivery and the tools HashiCorp is developing. If you're a fan of Software Engineering Daily, we really want to know how to improve. Please take five minutes to fill out our listener survey. There's a link to the survey in our newsletter and on our website. We would love to know what you think, and we know that only a fraction of the listeners have filled out the survey. We really want to know uh, what all of you think, or as many as we can possibly get. We'll stop hammering on the survey before too much longer, but please fill out the survey and let us know because it will benefit you. We read like literally every single piece of con- feedback that we get. So, so please fill out the survey. HashiCorp builds software for application development and deployment. Mitchell Hashimoto is the founder of HashiCorp. Mitchell, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. So let's start from a high level. What are the types of problems that HashiCorp is trying to solve? Uh, well, so at the, at the very highest level, um, the problem we're trying to solve is basically speeding up or making you more efficient at deploying and maintaining applications. Um, uh, currently, what that means, you know, in the in current, so what we're focusing on now, because currently, what that means is usually um, running in the cloud, uh, DevOps, um, basically a lot of automation. Um, our focus, which differentiates us from others, is that we'll uh, we're very old school friendly. You know, we work with physical data centers. We work with um, a lot of older vendors, and and use that as an opportunity to try to give you the same tools you would need in the cloud. So whether you want to move there or not, um, we want to make sure we give you the tools that could take you there, which is different from a lot of other um, companies in in the. IT infrastructure DevOps space, um, which is you know a lot are focused purely on something like containers, a lot are focused purely on VMs, and we're trying to say like that the transition is really really painful um, as each paradigm shift happens. So let's try to give you software that'll take you through each one. So the paradigm shifts are painful, and let's talk about those paradigm shifts. So in the past twenty years, our data centers have gone from single servers to virtualized servers to containers now. And as we have evolved to having a more complex infrastructure, automation has become important. At least that is a a tenet of HashiCorp. Explain why automation becomes more important as infrastructure becomes more complex. Sure. um, So the main reason in in infrastructure is that the numbers we're working with and the speeds we're working at are getting to a rate that isn't uh, it isn't feasible either physically or financially for humans to do. So, um, like physically, uh, there's we're trying to deploy at millisecond scale, basically, and scale you know scale on demand and things like that. And and there's no physical way uh, for a person to really watch like real time traffic graphs and and launch a server quick enough to handle that sort of load. So if you have a person, you inherently sort of limit the uh, granularity at which you could react to things a lot differently. Um, and then there's just the scale of it, so uh, the finances of it, which is that due to the scale of it, um, you know, you can't if you go from 100 servers to 1,000 servers, which is not you know, that many, but just use an example of a 10x increase. If you go from 100 to 1,000, um, you don't, you can't really afford to hire 10 more people to manage servers, or 10, 10 times more people to manage servers. It, the the per server revenue you're getting usually isn't enough to justify that much increase of people. So instead, what you need to do is is you probably do need to hire more, but you need to also increase the density at which they can manage things. So they need to be able to manage to go from being able to manage, uh, you know, fifty servers per person to five hundred servers per person. Uh, and again, I'm just using using fake numbers as examples. Usually, you could actually manage a lot more. Certainly, okay. So complexity increases, automation becomes more important, and another trend that you have discussed is that. We're seeing a proliferation of services in the cloud that developers are using. So we might use a database as a service. Uh, we might use uh, you know services for other things. How does this change the way that we build and deploy software? And 
And is this another one of these paradigm shifts that uh, you know some uh, software developers are experiencing pain in adjusting to? Yeah, I think um, I think it. Yeah, I, I've I've talked about this before, and I think that um, SaaS, whether we want it or not, you know, in, in enterprise technology or in our data centers, is coming. So uh, even from the perspective of AWS, AWS is obviously the elephant in the room in terms of where everyone is switching to, and. And even they provide database as a service, cache as a service, uh, NATs as a service, things like that. And and I've very, very rarely gone into, you know, anybody from a, from a small company to a Fortune 500, I've very rarely gone into a company where they're using purely only, you know, VPC and EC2, which would be just infrastructure. They're always using ELBs or um, some as-a-service thing. So the challenges this represents is mostly a management one, which is, uh, everything no longer is just a server, so everything's managed a little bit differently, uh, and everything is generally managed by an API. So, um, if you're all on AWS, at least you have one provider, but also you usually are using multiple uh, service providers. So you might just use AWS for the infrastructure services, but you might use, you know, things like Datadog or Librato or something for metrics and things like that outside of AWS. So, um, you need tools to be able to manage that. So, in, Ter- in, in HashiCorp's case, we have a tool called Terraform, which uh, builds your data center. It's free and open source. And uh, one of the core features of it is, is it can actually spin up and orchestrate multiple uh, providers together in one configuration. So you could actually spin up a data center in AWS and easy to do with all those things and then hook in a database from Heroku, metrics from Liberato, and all these things and pull them together. So I think in that uh, conversation that you touched on another one of these these trends that you've discussed, which is that uh, you know, everyone's dream is a homogeneous infrastructure, but homogeneity is actually a myth. It's not possible to get out. You can't just be, you're, you're never entirely, even if you're in AWS, you're never entirely on AWS. You're using these other things as a service. Um, and, uh, you know, we recently did a show about OpenStack, which is a data center operating system that can sit on top of a heterogeneous infrastructure. So I think this is uh, an interesting abstraction that uh, works to add some degree of, he- of homogeneity uh, atop heterogeneity. So um, do you see that as another trend? Like, can we use tools like OpenStack and the tools from HashiCorp? Is this, are these the compromises that we have to make or that we will choose to make to abstract away uh, you know the problems that exist with the heterogeneous infrastructure. Yeah, one of my sort of core like philosophies is that, I mean, it's sort of like entropy. Like as humans, we're going to strive for homogeneity and we're going to strive for um, unifying our data center under one technology. But we could fight that as hard as we can, and and just like entropy will continue to grow, I believe that um, heterogeneity is inevitable. And so the way I look at it is that it's sort of cyclical. Like you see, um, you see a period of near homogene- uh, homogeneity. So uh, an example is virtualization. Like if you went full in on VMware, ignoring the financial costs, if you went full in on VMware, then you probably saw a period where your data center was pretty homogenous. You saw uh, you had just a lot of VMs in there. It was pretty clean. Maybe you had a couple physical servers left over. But that's sort of what I'm talking about is that you always sort of uh, there's this common saying, which is sort of a, a joke, which is that um, things never like it, you know things never go away. So with F, with each new technology that comes out, we're just adding new technologies. We're not removing old ones. So um, it, even today, like when people are making huge switches to uh, containers and things like that, I'm still seeing a lot of VMs. I mean, it's still really early, but I, I'm seeing use cases for VMs that I don't think are disappearing, and I think that. Uh, you described things like OpenStack and things like that. And I think that at the same time, I think cyclically we'll get to a point where 95% of the data center is one thing, but you're going to have that 5%, which is a, a mishmash of other things. And I think that mishmash will actually just get worse. So um, again, it's one of the core things that we built into our tools, which is being able to handle this uh, uh, heterogeneity. And that's sort of part of the you know bridging the gap from legacy to modern is, is also part of supporting heterogeneity because... If you do adopt a tool, you do you would really like that tool to affect 100% of your data center rather than 95. It, it makes a pretty big difference because uh, that last 5% there's still an education burden, a maintenance burden, a support burden, you know that sort of thing. So you do want to be able to to cover it all. Now that we have 
discuss the macro perspective that you have and that you take into account when building tools at HashiCorp. Um, let's talk about the application delivery process as you see it. So you break down application delivery into three steps, development, deployment, and maintenance. And I'd like to talk a bit about each of these stages and the tools that HashiCorp develops to alleviate pains at these stages. And the first is development. So an ideal development process in your eyes is consistent shareable, readily available, and has high production parity. Explain why these characteristics are important to development. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you basically want your develop, you want development to be easy. So you, you really want developers to get up and running very easily. So uh, when you hire someone, they can start working, they could be impactful right away. When you have an emergency and you need to transition uh, resources to a new project, they can start working right away on the emergency. You know, you really want development to be fr- as frictionless as possible. Um, and to make it stable, you really want it to be as close to production as you can. You want, you want to be fairly confident that as you're writing code, it's going to behave in the same way as production. So I like to say that you know, development needs to be mostly an invisible thing. And it's not right now, but I think that that's, that's where we need to get to is where you're, a, a programmer really just wants to work in an editor and save and I actually, the thing I actually always say about development is that the only, the people that got it right, the people that got development perfect is the PHP community. Um, <laughs> that is a, like every technology, every every language, every framework, every process since then has been trying to emulate PHP, whether they think it or not. You basically want the workflow. It doesn't get any better than you have an editor, you save, you tab over, and you see the changes. Like that's what it gets to. And with PHP, you would save, you tab over, you refresh, and you see the changes. But um, that's really what you want for everything. And it's going to take a while to get there, but uh, that's that's sort of what we need to get to just so that we could develop faster. So the first step in deploying faster is making your applications faster. So, um, you know, development's one aspect of it. And we're obviously at the tooling layer, but there's a lot of other uh, important folks above us that are working on, you know, the framework layer and that sort of stuff. Mm. So uh, you also talk about the application uh, deployment and maintenance process. And in the deployment phase, we're concerned with starting and configuring servers and services, uh, as well as the actual deployment itself and then running our application. And then once our application is deployed, we want to maintain it. And the maintenance process can involve updating those servers or changing features or doing monitoring what are the canonical problems that exist across the deployment and maintenance phases of application delivery? Yeah, so deployment and maintenance is actually, I mean, so we, we break down application delivery into these three steps, and I, I would, obviously, I don't think it's wrong, but I also think there's a lot of other right answers. You could break it down further, you could, you know, you could break it down to, like, dozens, probably, but <laughs> I think that I think that these three at a high level also represent what you're doing, and and because they're so high level, though, um, there's they're pretty big. So deployment in particular is a and maintenance. I mean they're both huge huge categories. So um, so there's all these problems and and so that's why you see like we have one one or two development tools depending how you look at them and then at the same time we have seven tools focusing on deployment and maintenance and it's just because it's a it's a much bigger problem. There's many there well more more specifically there's many more problems um, within these uh, these fields. So we're trying to solve those. Okay, and now that we have some uh, holistic view of how you view application delivery, I do want to talk some about the tools themselves that you're working uh, on at HashiCorp. HashiCorp, and um, so like the first the first tool that you worked on was Vagrant, and there've been a lot of shows about Vagrant, a lot of podcasts, and we'll put some of those in the show notes. I don't want to touch on it too much, but um, just to briefly explain it, what is Vagrant? Uh, briefly explain it's striving for that development model. It's it's one command to get any development environment up and running for any technology. So what any language, containers or VMs, uh, any platform. So a Linux person can work on Windows apps, a Windows person can work on Linux apps or vice versa. And and, and so uh, it's just a development tool and, and its tagline is development made easy. That's what it strives for. A development made easy. So how how does it epitomize those those characteristics of good development that you mentioned? Consistency, shareability, availability, the the high production parity. 
Uh, so the it it addresses it by you know e- ease of use to get it up and running is one command for anything. Um, production parity, it you, you're supposed to use the same automation that you're setting up production as you're setting up a dev environment, and the way you achieve that is uh, Vagrant uses virtual machines so that you can mimic your production environments, um, and then uh, shareability. So Vagrant has built-in uh, features for basically showing your environments, um, collaborating on your environments across the internet. So anywhere, really. Uh, it's Actually, contractors love this feature the most because they're able to show clients like their their work without having to deploy it just from development. They could just uh, Vagrant share, get a URL, and send it to their client across the world, uh, and they could see it. So um, that's basically what it's trying to do. And just like anything else, one of the key points is that it's, it's technology agnostic. So uh, Vagrant has huge... Um, so it has huge sets of users in PHP and Ruby and um, JavaScript. It's sort of just spread out all over. Okay. So Vagrant is iconic of the development solutions at HashiCorp. And we should talk more about the deployment and maintenance solutions because there's such a more expansive tool set that you guys have built. Yeah. So. Talking about deployment and maintenance, you 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 break that you break those down into four fundamental steps, which is acquisition, provisioning, updating, and destruction. Could you explain these four steps of the deployment and maintenance process in more detail? Sure. Um, so that's uh, that's primarily a deployment breakdown, which is for deployment you you need to acquire a resource, um, you need to provision it, which, which is setting it up for running your application. That's the pre, that's the setup phase. Um, there's the update, which is you know, when, when, we need, when maintenance spins back around and we need to redeploy, um, we might need to update uh, the thing. on. Or if there's, a, if there's a security vulnerability or something, we need to update the underlying you know, OS or library version or something. And then there's destroy, which is, which is pretty straightforward. Uh, there's some point where it reaches the end of life and you've got to destroy it. And and there's also a trend right now called immutable infrastructure. And if you follow immutable infrastructure, it's the same thing except you don't have the update step. You just sort of acquire, provision, destroy, acquire, provision, destroy. Um, and immutable is all about making that fast. So um, that's basically uh, how we look at it. Deployment used to take a much longer time. And today, not only do we have faster deployment, we have things like microservices, we have a sharp increase in web traffic with more and more users, different types of users. You know, there's bots hammering our systems and we have highly distributed systems and they're auto scaling up and down. How do these types of changes in, in deployment and architecture, how do they change our application delivery workflow from what we might have been used to, you know, a decade or two decades ago? I think the primary way they change things is just, we have to be a lot more comfortable with, uh, the systems more than anything else. You know, before when you deploy things, you would you would physically you know send the bits over, flip it over, watch it sort of switch and update. And now you there has to be a lot more trust um, in you know you send your code to something which will eventually roll the deploy or or change the server or something. But it's a lot less uh, in control or there's a lot more distance between you and when it actually happens. So even if you are hitting the big red button to make it happen, uh, there's a lot happening between that button push and it actually happening. Um, and I think that's the biggest challenge. You know, like, er, there's a lot of early adopters which love it. There's a lot of early adopters, though, that um, had a really bad time because the tooling was so young and you can't trust it. Um, but you know, I think that every month you wait and not adopt it, it's getting better and better. So even when I meet people at conferences that are like, oh, I haven't had a chance to play with one of your tools like X yet. Uh, I, I'm always super happy. I'm always like, no problem. There's, there's a lot of people using it, but by the time you get to it, it's going to be more stable than today. So um, that's really not a problem. And, and so I think with deployment more than anything, it's going to become more and more automated. And, and perhaps we'll touch on it, perhaps we won't, but I think a big example is like schedulers. Like schedulers, uh, it's kind of like auto-scaling. I mean, schedulers more or less is is you give you give something your application and it decides where to put it and when to put it there and how many to put there uh, more or less so that's that's the ultimate um, lack of control but also gives you the promise of the ultimate amount of scalability and ease. Yeah, no. So I would love to talk about uh, scheduling a little bit further on in the conversation. Um, I think we should talk here about Terraform. Um, yeah. So what is Terraform? 
Uh, so Terraform is a tool for describing in configuration files your entire sort of data center topology. Um, and when I say data center, um, that used to just mean like a physical brick and mortar building with with things that consume electricity in it. But now when I talk about data center, I mean I mean I do mean servers. I mean I mean I mean physical and virtual and containerized servers. I mean DNS. I mean all your SaaS database providers and and connecting it all together. So. Um, Basically, the ultimate example I like to give of Terraform, its its ultimate goal, which it can do, is you should be able from nothing, from having nothing, to hitting one command and spinning up all the cloud resources you need, then installing something like Open uh, uh, like OpenStack on top of it, then in, then launching containers on top of it, or installing a scheduler on top of it. You basically should go from nothing to everything in one command, and and you can. So we have we have users that actually use Terraform for development because. Um, they could spin up an entire production clone using the same scripts as production uh, in one command in a few minutes. You, you know, they could spin up hundreds of cloud resources in a few minutes, um, and they could destroy them just as easily. So uh, that's that's the goal is trying to take um, just one more angle that I used to describe it as if you're familiar with uh, configuration management, um, which uh, focused on like Chef and Puppet focused on uh, setting up one server, installing packages and users and things on one server using a set of configuration files. Uh, Terraform is just like that, but instead of for one server, it's for your entire data center. Why would I want to spin up OpenStack on top of Terraform? Uh, so Terraform could interact with sort of bare metal uh, providers. So this would just be as a way to get... Uh, so Terraform isn't the thing that dispenses like a VM for you. It's the thing that sets up the thing that dispenses the VM for you. So Imagine you have an actual physical data center with a hundred servers, which are plugged in and inventoried in some thing, but they're not. They can't do anything except you could like manually SSH them and do something if you wanted to, but they're pretty manual. Uh, you could use Terraform to actually connect to those things, install OpenStack, coordinate that across, and then sort of return to you the addresses of it. Um, that's not a very common use case, so that's sort of a bad example. Uh, it's advanced, but. Uh, the the bigger example I was trying to to convey was was how much Terraform could do in a single command. Right. So okay, but uh, speaking like in terms of cloud infrastructure providers, like yeah. we have AWS and Google Cloud and Azure, and Terraform can be used to combine and manage the infrastructure that uh, you know can be across these different cloud service providers. So does that is that to say that it can it can it can lower the switching cost between them or is it more like you can it unifies all of these different resources with a single API or ex- explain exactly how uh, it, it, you know I can I can manage all these different uh, infrastructure providers just using Terraform. Yeah, and so it 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 definitely will lower switching costs and that's one of the prim- one of the primary reasons people choose to use it. It's but at the same, people are. I mean, it's it's totally legitimate concern. You know, everybody's yeah. afraid of lock-in. Yeah, um, and and yeah, and I'll talk about that in a second. But um, so Terraform, it, uh, it it's not an abstraction. So it, it is a way to dramatically lower switching costs, but it's also not an abstraction about the cloud provider. So you you're not saying I need a generic server of some sort, and then you say target ter- target AWS, target Google, so on. You would need different configurations for AWS and Google. And you would need to understand the cloud platforms. Um, that's just the abstraction part. I I think is interesting, but it's just not a problem Terraform's trying to address. Um, but the big benefit is that you get to use the same workflow, the same configuration syntax, the same tooling across the different clouds. So, as an example, like uh, AWS is CloudFormation, um, Azure has Azure like resource templates or something like that, um, and CloudFormation ha- and Google Compute also has their own uh, sort of. Inf- codified infrastructure builder thing. Um, and the reason, one of the reasons people choose Terraform above it, above all those, is because uh, it is not a lock-in to that one cloud. There's no way that CloudFormation is ever going to spin up Google inf- infrastructure. It's just never, ever going to happen. And uh, also, I mean, uh, that's just one reason. I mean, another reason is that because Terraform's open source and all those aren't, we actually get a huge amount of community uh, uh, help. So uh, the example I like to give is that AWS announced uh, something called a NAT gateway, which was a very, they announce things all the time, but this feature in particular was was very popular. It was a big deal that people really wanted. So they really wanted to start using it right away. And the time for 
uh, Terraform to support the NAT gateway once they publicly announced it was two days. And uh, the last I checked, which was a couple weeks ago, so it could have changed in a couple weeks, but the last I checked is uh, CloudFormation still doesn't support it, and they announced it in December. So it's been, it's what, mid-March? So it's been like three or four, three and a half months. And if you're using CloudFormation to automate your infrastructure, you're either not using an app gateway or you have to manually maintain the NAT gateway, which is with Terraform, uh, by the time you vet it out and you're ready to prove a concept that it was there for you, you know, n- n- so it's, it's one of those, that's another big reason that people choose uh, the open source side of things is it's, it's really hard for a company to keep up, even as big as Amazon, it's really hard for a company to keep up with the agility of sort of the, the masses that are willing to contribute to an open source project. Mm. So if a developer is talking to Terraform, what exactly are you describing to Terraform? Like, well, How do you describe what configuration you want from AWS versus Google Cloud or Azure or DigitalOcean? Like, does it look the same between these different things? Or, or is, yeah, just describe that configuration process in more detail. Yeah, it's, um, it, it, so it looks similar, but it's not the same. Uh, it looks very similar, though. So everything in Terraform looks really similar, which is also one of the reasons people like it. Uh, so everything in Terraform, it's a, it's, it has its own configuration language. So uh, for operators, like you don't need to be a programmer. This isn't programming. It's just really configuring uh, your whole data center. And so um, what it looks like is basically everything in Terraform is broken down into something called a resource. And a, an example of resources would be an EC2 instance, an Elastic IP, a DNS entry, uh, a database. Um, th- those are all resources. Uh, and basically, you just define the resources and the set of configurations for that resource. And, and you specify what you want, not how to do it. So Terraform is all declarative. So you specify the end state of your data center. Um, and even if it's at a current state, Terraform will get you there. And, and to make it even safer, there's a plan step. So you could actually ask Terraform to plan the transition, and it'll output the, the plan that it's going to do. And then you can tell it to execute that plan. So you could be sure that you know if the plan says that we're never ever going to change the IP of this one machine, then you could be sure that when you execute it, it won't change the IP. So um, this is really important because um, I'll, I'll pick on CloudFormation again just because, uh, just, be, <laughs> just because AWS is sort of the big you know, elephant. Uh, but CloudFormation, one of the big problems is that there are certain things in AWS that require a destroy and recreate. Like you can't change the AMI of an EC2 instance without destroying it and recreating it. Um, and... And so in CloudFormation, when you change the AMI, CloudFormation is also a desired state. You tell it what you want, and it gets you there. But because there's no plan step, what you do is you tell CloudFormation to do something, and you may not realize that the change you just did requires a destroy and recreate. Um, and an AMI is obvious. I mean, for anyone who's used AWS, that's obvious. But for anyone who hasn't used AWS, that probably isn't obvious. And there's a lot of things that even advanced users of AWS will find not obvious that require a destroy and create, which means that you usually get downtime when that happens. Um, so... There's been some really big companies we've gone into where we showcase the plan feature and ignoring everything else, they immediately say, okay, we're, we're adopting this just for that because the problem is if you don't have something like a plan, um, regardless of what other software you use, if you don't have something like a plan, the person that hits the final button to apply has to effectively be a, a genius or, or a, you know, an oracle, has to fully understand the system you're affecting and the changes that you have and how that will affect that system. It has to fully comprehend that. And with something like Terraform, you could have someone very junior, very beginner, make very scary infrastructure changes. And as long as it's gated by someone who's experienced to read the plan and make sure it's sane, then you could just apply it. It's a lot more of a trust model. I like to think of it a lot more as like uh, uh, when unit testing really blew up a lot more in, in software development. Like if for, for advanced pieces of software, as long as you know the CI says it's green, you, at some point, you just have to be like, okay, I think this is good to go, because you can't understand like the full scope of a change. And in the same way with data centers, as they get more complicated, the, the model of not having a plan is just, is, in my opinion, is not going to work. Hmm. So in that you mentioned, uh, you know, Terraform is the way to, you know, you, could, you can tell, you tell Terraform what you need, but you don't describe what you like how the steps in order to get there right um so that sounds like the type of uh thing that you you know you could you could delegate to a scheduler uh you know a scheduler would would figure out how to get the resources that you need um and we have all these different schedulers like mesos is marathon uh kubernetes i think as a scheduler um and then you know there's things like ecs 
Uh, I don't know if that's classified as a scheduler, but yeah, it is. Um, yeah. Okay, so describe, uh, you know, describe if, if I'm if I'm correct here and what I'm how I'm describing things and whether and and how Terraform interacts with a scheduler and how yeah, just describe the interaction pattern. Sure. Um, so, well, real quick before I talk about how it interacts with scheduler, you mentioned something that it's just really important uh, for us as a company. You mentioned that. The declarative, I mean, I mentioned that, then you reiterated. So the declarative, um, you specify the end state, and then it gets you there. And that a core part of sort of my belief in all the tools we build is that declarative is the only way to scale at a certain point because uh, you stop being able to comprehend how to get there because the system becomes so complex. So um, You know, it's so interesting because we see this rise of uh, imp- of declarative syntax popularity in, in like, everywhere. It's, like, <laughs> it's becoming more popular on the front end with React. And, uh, yeah, it, I don't know. Declarative syntax is really all the rage I, these days. Yeah, I mean, I think that – I just think that it's the only way to scale. And, and, and I've had very, very – passionate arguments sort of with people about this because um, it is a very, uh, I would say, opinionated or religious even view for some people that imperative is better than declarative or something like that. And, and I, I really, truly believe declarative is the way to go. And, and one of the first really magical moments for me for Terraform in particular was when I was uh, helping someone manage a pretty complicated infrastructure with Terraform. Um, this is very early on, so I was sort of hands-on helping this company because uh, Terraform was young, and we wanted to make sure it worked. And they made a change, uh, and they ran the plan. And I looked at the plan, and it looked wrong. Like it, it wasn't how I would do it. And and the way we always developed Terraform would be was you know for any complex change, what would a human do and try to get it to do that? And in this case, the plan looked like very weird. I was like, I don't. This doesn't seem right to me. But then I thought about it. And I realized that because Terraform is declarative, Terraform actually found a much faster way to get to the end state that required no downtime. Um, and it was creative, but it worked. And so when you ran Terraform, you got a zero downtime very quick, much less, AP, much fewer API calls um, sort of thing. And it worked. And that was when you know, it really clicked for me uh, a lot more for Terraform that I was like, okay, like this, is, this is another reason declarative is crazy. Because when computers are you know, finding the route to get to your end state, uh, they'll find really weird things. And a great example is like, you know, we just saw uh, at the time of recording this, like just a few weeks ago, AlphaGo was that huge Google project that beat um, one of the world's best Go players. And and one of the things about computers learning how to play the game is they play the game. One of the things that was touted as being really exciting is that the computer will teach people how to play the game better because the computer will come up with strategies that we've never thought of before. Um, and in the same way, Terraform sort of showed me showed me a way to do this one infrastructure change that I would have never thought of, um, which is kind of interesting. So I think, yeah. you know, that's a, I think that as things get more complicated, declarative will get more and more interesting that way. Um, so, okay, so, I'll, so that's, that's my thing. I, I mean, I, I think declarative is really cool. So that's that. Um, for, for schedulers, so the way Terraform interacts with schedulers is, in a way with, with all our tools, like ter- there's a huge spectrum at which you could use Terraform. You could use Terraform to do your full deploys. You could use Terraform for, for development. There's like, it's a Swiss army knife that, well, it's not a Swiss army knife. It does one thing particularly well, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's something that, you know, it's a hammer that you could choose to hammer a lot of things with. And uh, when you have a scheduler, a lot of the things Terraform needs to do goes away, and that's not a bad thing because schedulers give you a, a lot of other things. So if you have a scheduler, the way it usually works is Terraform spins up the underlying infrastructure that the scheduler needs, and then it hands off deployment and management of that infrastructure to the scheduler. So uh, at the time of, of, of this recording, there's no, there's no schedulers that actively manage the infrastructure. They sort of expect a pool of resources to be fixed, and they schedule to them, and a, a, a human or something else, you know, like Terraform, underneath will grow and expand the pool of resources as needed, but the scheduler just sort of accepts that as a fixed pool. Um, so at this point, the way it would work, I'll use our scheduler as an example, Nomad, is that you would spin up uh, 50 EC2 instances and then tell Nomad, here's 50 EC2 instances for you to schedule to. And then if you decide that you need more scale, you would use Terraform to spin up to 55 and then update Nomad and say, here's, here's five more servers for you to schedule to. Um, so that's the interaction right now. Uh, it could get more advanced. Um, so in Terraform, there's actually a Kubernetes provider where uh, you could you could spin up the resources, install Kubernetes, and then there's the Kubernetes provider. And what that does is you could actually deploy applications on a Kubernetes. So just in the same way that 
you could bridge together different SaaSs and clouds. Like I said, you could actually request the EC2 instance, install a scheduler, and then use a resource to just send an application to that scheduler. So uh, the scheduler is still responsible for the deploy, but Terraform is sending it to it. Um, and that that's usually just useful for bootstrapping. Like if you have uh, initial applications the scheduler needs to run, then Terraform is a good way to get that going. Why did you choose to build your own scheduler rather than using one of the other ones that are uh, publicly available? Uh, so that's a great question. So, um, and, and I think that my answer in a little ways will sound arrogant, and, and that's unfortunate. But um, so, sort of, so sort of when, when we look at a problem space, um, we sort of look at what other tools are out there. Um, and if something's good enough, we use it. And so we're in a lot of areas. Like we have seven, seven different things in deployment, but uh, there's, I, would, I would say there's like 50 problems. So, I mean, we, we've only solved a fraction of them. And, and that's because a lot of them are like, we haven't touched logging, we haven't touched monitoring, um, stuff like that. And so we went to look at a scheduler and a scheduler is a really, really important piece of your data center. It's, it, it's, it's really important because it's sort of the backbone of, of everything else. I think Terraform is one part of the backbone and, and Scheduler is the second. I, I would say those two are really important in terms of deployments, not in terms of sort of maintenance. Um, and so we looked at schedulers and, and we needed to pick one basically to align ourselves with to be really integrate heavily with because we do believe schedulers are the future and, um, and we needed to make sure it worked really well with one and we wanted to closely integrate with one. Uh, so we went out there and looked at the schedulers, and and I should mention that Armand, uh, the other co-founder of HashiCorp, he built a scheduler before uh, at Amazon. He worked for Amazon and built a scheduler internally. Um, it was a physical scheduler, so he built a, a scheduler that scheduled uh, where shipments to the Amazon warehouses went in the warehouse. Um, oh wow! Yeah, it, it was a physical. <laughs> yeah, his his scheduler was guiding robots, physical robots, but but it's a scheduler, so. Uh, he he has a really good eye for schedulers and understands them very deeply. The the, the, the computer science theory behind that scheduler and and a cluster scheduler which which schedules applications is identical. So um, wow. he has a really good eye. We can talk about that in a second. But um, he uh, we looked and and lo- the, the schedulers out there are fine, but we didn't we didn't sort of like the schedulers out there didn't hit the design properties that we had. And that's not to say they didn't scale enough or anything like that. It just didn't. You know, it wasn't declarative enough. It wasn't self-healing enough. Um, it didn't integrate with service discovery well enough. You know, these sort of things didn't happen. And and when you're faced with something like this, you, as a company, as an individual, sort of as a developer in general, like you have two choices, which is either work with them uh, and and go through the politics and the red tape that exists in every project to try to get the integration happen and the features you want happen and your agenda sort of pushed, um, or you can try to build your own. And in, in the scheduler space, uh, building our own was sort of a last resort because schedulers are very, very complicated. Um, and, and so we didn't really want to get into that game unless we had to. And, and sort of we felt, we felt that we could do a much better job in, in many areas. Uh, and so we decided to do it. Totally. And so, uh, wow, so much to cover. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing that, that you said there um, was I thought uh, you said schedulers are the future, and um, you know some people listening to this podcast may not even know what a scheduler is. Like even after our conversation just now, they might be like, "What? Yeah, like what is that?" Um, do you want me to cover that? I could do that pretty. That cool. would be great. Could you could you explain what a scheduler is and why why is it the future? Why are, why are these things so important? Yeah. Okay. So what a scheduler is? It's very easy to understand. So. Um, a scheduler is, is very well defined. It's, it's something that maps a set of work to a more limited set of resources, usually more limited set of resources. So that's the generic thing. So the reason the generic definition is important is because once you understand it, you realize that schedulers surround you in your world. They're everywhere. Um, so let me give you some examples. Your CPU has a scheduler. You're running a set of applications, which is more than the set of CPU cores you have. So there's more work then there are resources. So you have a scheduler running right now uh, on your computer, on your phone, and so on that's mapping applications to CPU cores. Um, if you have an assistant, then you have a human scheduler, which is mapping a set of meetings or a set of plans onto a limited set of time slots in your calendar. That's a scheduler. Uh, very, very literal, almost scheduler. Um, 
And then for, for computers, then, there's something called a cluster scheduler. Or, well, actually, let me, let me back up one level. So when you request a VM from EC2 or when you sign up for a, share, a hosting provider, um, that's a scheduler as well because they're scheduling uh, a set of virtual machines or shared hosting resources onto a more limited set of servers. Um, so that's also a scheduler. So EC2 itself is a scheduler. Um, all clouds are schedulers. All SaaS providers are schedulers. That's all sort of there. Um, but they're very specific schedulers. Then there's generic schedulers, um, and, and, and we've built something called a cluster scheduler. And a cluster scheduler schedules a set of applications onto a set of servers. Um, and it's a very generic sort of scheduler. It's sort of like, here's how much CPU I need, here's how much memory, um, and then here's a huge pool of it. Find the, the slot that fits this correctly. And so that's what a scheduler is. And the reason why they're the future and why they're so important is because as our number of app, so there's two things that are growing in, in deployment right now. There's the number of applications are growing um, because we have microservices, even without microservices, just the number of things we're deploying is, is growing. And then the number of servers we have is growing. So before what we would do as, as DevOps people, as developers, as anybody, is we would launch a server and then put one application onto that server. Um, and that worked fine, but when you have, let, let's go extreme. Well, let's not go extreme because extreme might, might, turn you away. So if, if you have 50 applications, which isn't very extreme for a, a large company, if you have 50 applications, putting them one at a time on a server is really wasteful because a lot of those 50 applications do nothing. Like they need to exist, but they don't do anything on a, on a, on a, a full-time basis. Like the, there's, there might be a service that uh, handles like uh, the cron jobs that do statistics roll-ups once a day. Uh, so once a day, they use a ton of CPU the rest of the day, they do nothing. So if you have the server, and it's funny because the server name for every company I've ever gone to for some reason is Util. Uh, but if you have that like Util server that has the crons that's running all the stuff, that Util server is costing you real money for doing nothing 23 hours of the day. Uh, so now if you 10x this problem, then you're losing a lot of money um, and you have a lot of waste. So what a scheduler does is you tell the schedule all the jobs. So in the, in the cron case, you would actually tell Nomad in this case, this is a job that needs to run uh, at 11 p.m. every day. This is, this is when it needs to run, and when it needs to run, this is how many resources it needs. But it know, Nomad as a scheduler knows that the rest of the day it needs no resources. So it doesn't use them. It doesn't assi- it'll reassign those resources to other things, knowing safely that it can. So if you're if your web traffic during the day is very high, for example, it'll actually spawn more uh, web applications in those same slots that it knows at 11 p.m. it's going to need for your roll-up, but also at 11 p.m. you probably have less traffic, so it could spin those down. Um, and so this is a very complicated problem, but this is the promise the schedulers are going to give us. And, and, and schedulers aren't new at all, obviously. They, they've been surrounding us for decades, but um, cluster schedulers is a mainstream thing are, I think, the new thing that's, that's going to be the future uh, but if you look at company, like really high-tech companies like Twitter, Netflix, uh, Google, they've been using ske- cluster schedulers in production for over a decade. So these aren't new technologies. They're very proven, um, but it's just that no one except the highest you know, top 1% scale has needed them until, until what I'm arguing is now. I think that they have a sure. lot of benefits now. Although, in, and, and at this point, uh, you know, if, if you improve a scheduler, the, uh, the scale that we're at, you, see, you will see such good economics out yeah. of those, those improvements in the scheduler. So that's, that's really where some of the importance comes in. Yeah, and I think um, that there's, there's one thing that also people don't realize right away that, that also is a huge aspect, especially for big companies, that schedulers uh, are also an anti-lock-in mechanism. So if, you're, if what you're deploying is just to a scheduler, um, then you could very quickly switch from one cloud mm-hmm. provider to another. So it gives big companies a lot of leverage um, in terms of you know, price negotiation and things like that because there's no lock-in into their vendor. Totally. Okay, I want to talk about another tool that HashiCorp works on, which is Console. Uh, and this is a kind of a shift in the conversation. So Console's job is to perform service discovery, configuration, and orchestration. And as we're talking about these large-scale distributed systems, uh, we're talking about microservices, service discovery is really important. What is service discovery? Uh, 
service discovery is really simple. And when, when I explain what service discovery is, it sounds like a problem that doesn't really need to be solved. But um, <laughs> service discovery is basically finding the things you need to talk to. So as a web application, where's my database? As a load balancer, you know, where's the applications that I'm load balancing to? Um, you know, that those are that's the basic problem. So it's it's like almost like service A needs to know the URL of service B. I mean, yeah. if you're if you're if you wanted to go to a search engine and you don't know Google.com, then you can't find your search engine. Yeah, or more more um, specifically, so- I mean, Google.com is service discovery for the actual machine IP of of Google. Um, so, how do you find the actual IP address of Google? You use service discovery, which is DNS. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Great. So, so when Service A asks Console a question like, you know, where is the database service? Uh, so, what's actually going on under the covers there? How does Service yeah. A know where to find Console? And and uh, you know, how does Console know where to find? the service that service A is looking for. Yep. So the the innovation, the thing that makes console interesting is the distributed nature of it and the self-discovery nature of it. So um, when you launch a machine, you install console on everything. So you ask the local machine where something else is. So that's how you get rid of the where's console problem, kind of. Uh, they, that console thing obviously needs to find the rest of them. Uh, but that So the way that works, without going into detail, is is a is a gossip protocol that basically you tell you tell that console where one other console is and it'll find the rest automatically. So you need to solve one chicken and egg problem, but there's a lot of well documented ways to solve that one problem. But the moment you solve that one problem, you get service discovery for every single service in your data center or in the in multiple data centers actually. Um, and then and then we actually use DNS. So you actually do use uh, we we take the dot console top level domain and. And you actually would do database.service.console to find the database, um, or or Redis.service.console to find Redis, and so on. Um, and we use DNS. You know, this comes back to one of the trends that you touched on earlier, which is that you know we're using external services for a, an increasing number of things, and console can access external services. It doesn't. It doesn't just uh, you know access internal services. So. What are some of the challenges to external service discovery? I mean, I imagine if you can't install console on those external external services, maybe that uh, inhibits you from the from the same model you discussed earlier, where you install console on everything. Yeah. So, so the I mean, actually, the big challenge of external services is to me is is you want them to behave like their internal services. You want the fact that it's going across the internet or something to mostly be invisible to you. Um, it, when you use a database as a service, you you like to pretend that the database is right there in your data center. And so what's really disruptive is a lot of these external um, services, they give you these really complex, weird URLs to, to access them. And and for a lot of good reasons, there's some security through obscurity there in terms of not being able to guess them. Um, they need to generate them randomly for every customer, things like that. But but as your application, it's, a, it's kind of a burden because now you need to configure every application with these weird URLs. And so what console does is you're actually able to configure external services. So you're able to say that when somebody looks for the database, it's actually at this weird URL. So every application still does database.service.console, um, but that's going to return a C name to them to the actual D, uh, DNS entry. So it'll actually route properly. So you could act like everything's internal. And, and this actually goes all the way back to development of why this is important. So... In development, you might actually be running your database locally, like on localhost. So you are not using one of these weird URLs. It's just localhost. But uh, for development, you still just do database.service.console, and it's going to be local there. Um, so a lot of applications have made it so you configure sort of where the database is. Like it's always at here or there. And and if you're using console, you can more or less just hard code these DNS entries into your applications uh, and and just rely on on console or you know some system giving you the right response back console is full of interesting distributed systems uh problems and um you also have you have a tool called surf which uh, i'm guessing fulfills a lot of the responsibilities of these distributed systems problems that console has is that accurate yeah so surf is 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 an open source project we have, and it is in use by some really interesting people. But it's not one we talk about a lot because it's very advanced and it doesn't. It's a building block. Like it's not a solution. Like you're going to have to build something on top of Surf. And 
And, and so what it does for console is it solves the problem of membership, distributed membership. So one of the core problems of any distributed system that you ever build is who is part of my cluster and are they still healthy or not. Um, and Surf is sort of a library for us to, to shim that in. So both, both console and Nomad actually are distributed systems that live on top of Surf for membership. Does Surf displace Zookeeper? Uh, no, console does. Console does. Oh, okay. So con- console has key value storage that uh, behaves in the same way as Zookeeper. Okay, very interesting. Um, can you tell me any? I mean, so you know, you ha- you have all these interesting distributed systems problems. You know, you've got leader, the cl- you know canonical things like leader election, gossip protocols, um, you know, different kinds of consistency. Uh, and I always find the subjective decisions in distributed systems to be pretty interesting. Are there any? Like, can you tell me any interesting distributed systems challenges you had, like where you made a subjective decision that came down to, you know, uh, just a, pr- a preference you have? Yeah, I mean, the, the hard part about distributed systems is that they give you, they define pretty well your set of impossibilities. So um, I had to sort of come up to speed on distributed systems. Again, Armand's the one with the heavier background in distributed systems. That's what he was studying at university, and, and that's how he, how he came into industry. So um, when we were working on Surf, which was our first distributed system, there was a lot of features that I was like, oh, it would be really cool if we could do this feature. And, and then Armand would think about it for a few seconds and be like, it would, but it's impossible, so we can't. Um, and that's the hardest part for me, for, or hardest part in general. is is And that's why I laugh whenever I see any project, which is like, or single server for now will be distributed later. It's like you can't, you can do that in some ways, but you'll have to remove features or disable them because there's a lot of things that are impossible to make distributed. Or if you choose to like not support a feature, you could actually make like the distributed guarantees a lot stronger. So with with console, the sort of guarantees we make are um, is that the the underlying health checks are really highly available. So they're an, what are what's considered an AP system. They, they are partition tolerant and, and available um, always. Um, but the key value of the service discovery, all the state sort of on top of it, is CP. So it's consistent in the case of downtime or, 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 network, uh, or in terms of network problems. Um, and it's partition tolerant in that while, while there's a partition, it'll heal properly, um, but it won't be available during a partition. So during a partition, you can't actually write uh, to certain parts of it. So, uh, you know, as we're wrapping towards the end of this conversation, um, you know, we've talked about some of the tools that HashiCorp is working on, uh, but there are a bunch more that we haven't discussed. Uh, But I would like to zoom out a little bit and get your macro perspective, talk a little bit about the business. So what is the core mission of HashiCorp? The the core mission of HashiCorp is just to try to make, you know, I I make, application delivery better and, and my motivation for that personally the reason i mean a lot of people laugh and it's like wow like why'd you get into this i'm not particularly old so they you know they ask like this sounds this doesn't sound like a very exciting thing like why aren't you making a chat app or something and and the reason i got into this is because i i, I mean armand and i have no shortage of non-infrastructure ideas we when we decided to sort of work together uh, we didn't search for a company idea but we we talk we, we talk about ideas all the time and and there were some other ideas we had that we, we thought about pursuing, but it always came down to like, man, at some point we're going to have to deploy this, and deployment really sucks. And so we actually went full back, which is like, what if we solved like deployment? Like, what if that's what we did? And so it's it, it's weird because we built this company to make deployment easy, to make managing data centers easy, so that if we ever did anything in the future, we wouldn't ever have to solve these problems again. Um, and perhaps we won't because we'll be doing this, but, um, but that's sort of the motivation behind everything. So HashiCorp's mission is to uh, give you the data center sort of of the future while also uh, giving you the bridge sort of to get there from your current, your current view of the data center. So uh, wherever you are right now, we'll paint you a beautiful future that you could get to, uh, but we'll also give you the tools to get you there. Uh, there's a lot of other vendors out there that are going to paint you a really beautiful picture, uh, but then tell you to throw away everything or rewrite everything in order to get that future. And and we recognize that as not being very pragmatic. So we're trying to give you the tools to get you there. So speaking from your uh, your personal desires, your personal drives, though, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, so like, let's say, you know, HashiCorp's, you know, gets the 
you know, the 90%, 90% of the application delivery, the way that you want it. And you get to the point where, you know, you've got the last 10%, it's the last mile. It's the hardest part of getting application delivery fixed the way you want it. Uh, but it's it's so close. Like, I mean, if you get to the point to where it's close enough, will you just like say, you know what? I think we want to just go build that chat app now because you know I've I've looked at your you know your history and you you know you've done all these you know things related to games and yeah. other projects and I, I I can totally sense that you have other things boiling in your brain that you want to work on that are completely unrelated to uh, to application delivery and low like you know low level deployment stuff. Um, like just on a personal level, do you, could you see yourself ever getting that creative itch where you're just like, you know, we've done enough of this. I'm going to go build a chat app. Yeah, I mean, I think that, well, you, you started out by saying that, like, what if the last 10% is like a really hard problem? And, and it always is. The last mile is always really difficult. Right. And, you know, I think that more than a lot of companies, I think that HashiCorp has consistently shown that, that hard problems don't scare us. So, so we'll, we'll attack the hard problems. That, that's not the thing that's ever going to drive us away. Um, I think that, you know... But boredom, I mean, boredom, boredom can be a harder yeah, problem. Yeah, so boredom is a real thing. But I think that, again, like it's... Uh, we do a lot of different things. So if, if I'm bored with uh, schedulers, I could always go work on security. We, have, we didn't talk about Vault, we don't need to, but like we have, we have a security tool that's, that's um, one of the most sort of prominent security tools in, in modern DevOps right now. And, and uh, I could work on security if I wanted to. Actually, security is really stressful, so then I could go work on Terraform if I want to. Um, so, I mean, it's possible. It's always possible, but I mean, I, this is sort of my passion. I, I started, I built, I did do a lot of other things, but I also started working on um, data center automation and things in college for fun. Like, it's not something that I'm forcing in any way. It's always something I've done. So I think that, on the on the probability of me getting bored of it and just leaving the industry because of that is quite low. <laughs> mm, yeah. Do, do you feel like you have competitors of HashiCorp or like? Yeah. I mean, you you guys have such a large uh, scope and and you've also built so many interesting products. Uh, but like, do you feel like they're competitive or are they just like things that are pure value add and people will get in addition to, to other solutions or, uh, yeah. Like how do you think about competition? Yeah. I mean, you sort of hit the nail on the head, which is we do a lot of different things and because we do a lot of different things, we actually have a lot of different competitors. So, um, it's made partnerships particularly interesting, um, because, you know, we're really, we might partner really well with someone because of Terraform, but are directly competitive because of Nomad or Vault or something. Um, and, and so when we talk to other companies, we, we like to say that, you know, like, think of it like we're, we're much, much smaller scale, but think of it like how Apple has to partner with Samsung. Like Samsung's their biggest phone competitor, but they work really well. They have a really good financial and, and business relationship at the chip level. Um, so they 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 turn a blind eye from their partnership perspective to the phone. So like if if we're partnering on Terraform and we're directly competitive on Vault, then we'll never publicly together ever even like mention Vault exists. Obviously, we're going to talk about it as a company, but never in the same space as you. Um, so uh, but we will highlight like achievements on Terraform things like that. So that's all to say that there's there's a lot of competitors, um, but something I like about it is that. You know, we we only have to be the best in one um, as a business to succeed. So um, right now, there's there's a lot of things doing well from a from a business perspective, from a financial perspective. The things doing the best for us are Terraform and Vault. And um, you know, if if for example, if console doesn't become the service discovery solution out there, if something else uh, sort of beats it out to become like the best service discovery solution, then from a, from a business perspective, not a big deal. And from a mission perspective. There's something still solving that problem, so um, I'm not affected on the mission side. Uh, the business continues to exist because we have we've hedged our bets with a lot of other technologies, um, and so yeah. All right, well, that seems like a good place to close off. Mitchell, thanks so much for coming on to Software Engineering Daily and spending your time. Uh, I'm very impressed with HashiCorp, and I look forward to seeing what you guys build in the future. All right, thank you. Thanks for having me.